I want to say once again, mm -hmm. welcome to everyone. And thank you to my co-host, Shemaine and Sherry Ann. Just give a wave. We're going to be hosting this, this event this afternoon. Big shout out to Dr. Lynn O'Connor, Dr. Lizette Caesar, and Dr. Cynthia Sequenu. So once again, thank you all to our participants for joining us. So welcome back to another episode of The Buzz, where we bring you the best in gospel music, but also in wholesome content. Be sure to like, to subscribe, our, and to subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch all previous episodes. So now for everyone that's here, we all know that today's show is all about the causes, prevention, and treatment of colorectal cancer, a disease that's pervasive in our community, and it's affecting people at younger and younger stages of life. We have three phenomenal women that are with us today and they are unmatched in their respective fields. So before we go into introducing each of our panelists, I'm going to give my co-hosts an opportunity to introduce themselves. We'll begin with Sherry Ann Holder, who is a licensed mental health counselor. Sherry Ann. Hi, good evening. My name is Sherry Ann Holder France and I am a licensed mental health counselor. Um, I have been uh, providing clinical therapy for about 10 years now. Um, I have worked in New York City and I currently now work um, within the state of Maryland. And um, it's an honor to be a part of this um, discussion. And my hope is that we can all gain something needed from this moment and that we can um, be a light where we need to be. Shemaine? Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Shemaine Francis. I am licensed master social worker. I currently work in um, New York City public schools. And um, it is important to me both in um, this practice in school and in private clinical practice to make sure that people are connected to the resources they need to really maximize um, their divine purpose in life and this is no different than, from that. So I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you, thank you. I failed to mention who I am and what I do. So my name again is Dr. Chanel Hall. I'm a New York City public school principal, uh, working in New York City public schools for almost 20 years. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to partner with everyone on this call to share this very, very important information. So I take pleasure and delight in introducing and bringing to to the forum to speak, Dr. Lizette Caesar. So Dr. Caesar has been an educator for, for 30 years at this point. And she is also a New York City public school principal. And in 2019, she learned that she, uh, was, she was diagnosed with stage two colon cancer. And since then, she's not only been, a, been on a mission to improve her own health, but to teach others how to ensure that they are healthy. So I really want to thank you, Dr. Caesar, for your belief in sharing the good news, right, and making sure that everyone receives this quality information. And um, I hand it over to you to introduce yourself. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, yeah, my name is Dr. Lissette Caesar, also known as Dr. Liz. I've been an educator for almost 30 years. I am the founding principal of Mosaic Preparatory Academy, a public school in East Harlem, New York. I am also an author. I wrote a children's book, Little Lizzie and the Big Blue Parade about my cancer journey. And I'm so delighted here to tell you about my cancer story in hopes that we can prevent um, colon cancer from even developing in, any, in another person. Thank you for having me today. 
Thank you, Dr. Lizette. And I have the honor of introducing Dr. Lynn O'Connor. Um, Dr. Lynn is the Director of Colon and Rectal Surgery of New York and the Section Chief of Colon and Rectal Surgery at Mercy Medical Center and St. Joseph Hospital. Um, Dr. O'Connor is a well sought after lecturer and speaker um, on rectal um, colon and colon health. Um, she has been featured on NBC News, SiriusXM, todayshow.com, and Men's Health Magazine. She has uh, received numerous awards and honors um, in this field. And Dr. Lindbergh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So you can go ahead and continue to introduce yourself to us. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. It is a pleasure and an honor. Um, it's my mission and passion to empower, enlighten, and educate our community about the importance of colorectal cancer screening and colorectal health. Uh, as chief of colorectal surgery at Mercy Hospital and St. Joe's Hospital, um, and uh, helping in the hospital as well as the surrounding communities has been something that's very, very important to me. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And I have the honor of introducing Dr. Essie Kwanu. She is a native of Newark, New Jersey, was born to par immigrant parents from Ghana, West Africa, she studied biology at Smith College, where she graduated with honors before earning her medical degree at Boston University School of Medicine. Then she returned to her hometown of Newark and completed internal medicine res residency training with a subspecialty training in transplant hepatology at Rutgers New Jersey School of Medicine. She relocated to Brooklyn, the best place to be, for her training in gastroenterology, hepatology at SUNY Downstate, after which she stayed on as faculty for four years before moving on to private practice. She is passionate about healthcare disparities and currently focusing her energy on raising awareness about colorectal cancer screening and prevention. Dr. Kwanu is, a board, is board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine in both internal medicine and gastroenterology hepatology. She is a member of the NYSGE, ACG, and AASLD Association study for the study of liver disease. Dr. Kwanu, we're so excited to have you. Please talk to the people. Thank you for having me. Also member of AKA, that should be up there too. But anyway, <laughs> good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's my complete pleasure to talk to you today about a, a topic that's very important to me and very important in our community as well. So I'm just going to go straight into uh, my Wait, I'm sorry, Dr. Um, Cynthia, before you go, we typically like to do an icebreaker here on the Gospel Music Buzz. You know, we are about to get into some very heavy stuff. So we just want to lighten the mood before we get okay. right into it. All right, guys. All right, ladies. <laughs> so, you know, spring has sprung and it is upon us. And, you know, typically people get some, into spring cleaning and we do some things. So I have a question. Um, in the spirit of spring cleaning, imagine if you were spring cleaning your phone. What were the three apps you could not go without? You want me to go first? <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to say Instagram, my meld app calculator, that's a liver app, and um, up to date. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Lynn? Um, well, assuming, you know, I can keep my contacts and email, that has to be okay. there. Um, Facebook, because mm -hmm. I communicate with my, my, my family, friends, and patients. Um, 
words with friends. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> and uh, the the little Google thing, because I'm constantly Googling everything, that little, the little icon. So whatever that one is, I have to have that. Oh, I'm constantly awesome. Googling. Dr. Lizette? Um, so Amazon, first and foremost. <laughs> I am a shopaholic myself and for my school, um, TikTok. Um, I have oh. to, well, for my for my chapter, I'm also an AKA. We all, all three of us are AKAs. I am the chapter DJ, so I have to stay in no <laughs> music. And um, probably Twitter. I do a lot of tweeting about myself and the school. All right, awesome. All right, Dr. Chanel, I'm gonna throw that question to you. Oh boy. Um, Instagram. Okay. Book. And I have this new one that my mom put me on to. She's on the call, Greta Holder. I'm going to put you on blast. It is, man, it's a words game. It's not wordscapes, but May, do you remember what it is? Wordle. Wordle. That's what, Wordle. That's my thing nowadays. All right. Um, Shemaine, what about you? Okay. Instagram, podcast app. And the New York Times Games app because I I, I gotta gotta get my words in. Okay. What about you, Shannon? Well, you would think that I would have thought about my answers prior to asking this, but I haven't. So um, I'm gonna say I need the is the camera considered an app? <laughs> I need my camera. Um, I take it I off. Need, it doesn't count. Okay. Um, let me see. Let me see. All right. So I will go with like Dr. Lynn. I need the little Google icon thing. I'm, I'm a Googler. I always have to look up something. So that one, um, I'll throw Instagram in there, even though I don't feel like I need it. Um, and, uh, I think I, I can't think of a third one. I, I think, I think I'm pretty set with those two. Your question. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. All right. Thank you, ladies, for participating. And now, Dr. Cynthia, back to you. All right. All right. So let me just uh, start this. And then share screen. All right. Uh, yeah, so this is where I'm located. I'll put this at the end too and my assistant's phone number. Um, so the, the goal of this talk is to kind of diffuse the mystique surrounding colon cancer and colon cancer screening um, um, to help you overcome the fear and kind of discuss uh, what people say out there that's not necessarily true about the whole process. Okay. So first, um, I give this lecture a lot and there's always at least one or two people who are confused about what exactly we're talking about. So this is what this slide is for. So colorectal cancer are cancers that affect um, the rectum and the colon. The prostate cancer is a separate issue. Uh, prostate cancer, um, what your prostate gland is, is located um, above your bladder and in front of your rectum for men only. And um, because of where it's located, um, in order to do a, a prostate cancer screening, men often undergo digital rectal exam. That's having one, one uh, a digit put in the rectum in order to feel the contours of the prostate. And I think because of this kind of anatomic association, this is why people often um, mix up 
colon, colorectal cancer, and prostate cancer. So prostate cancer uh, screening is a separate issue. Um, it, it starts at the age of 45. Um, for Black men, 40, if you have a family history, and all others around 50, I believe. So if prostate cancer is a, a, a point of uh, that needs to be explored, you follow up with your primary care doctor and a urologist, possibly. So from now on, we'll be discuss, discussing colon can, colorectal cancer. So just to talk about some signs and symptoms, um, I'm, I'm sure Dr. O'Connor has this experience as well, where you have a patient who doesn't have any symptoms um, and doesn't has normal labs and is found to have a colon cancer incidentally. Um, this has happened to me a couple of times for normal healthy screening patients who had no complaints. And like I said, normal blood work and I've, I've found cancers. Um, some of, if you do have symptoms, oftentimes it can be blood parectum, especially depending on where the cancer is located. Um, for cancers on the left side, typically there is blood parectum, um, but on, on the right side, at times there may not be. Um, sometimes there is weight loss, um, and sometimes there's either a, 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 a recent change in the bowel habits so, or, or worsening constipation. So if you're someone who suffered with constipation since you were a teenager and nothing's changed about that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a colon cancer. Um, typically it's a, a, a change in the bowel habits that's most important. And often someone mentioned about what are the signs in women that we should um, pay attention to. So anemia in a man or a woman are both things that are alarming. Anemia is low blood count and need to be worked up. I find that oftentimes because women menstruate, um, it may be that, uh, uh, you know, ex look, uh, exploring the reason why someone has a, lo a low, uh, a woman has a low blood count, um, sometimes that goes overlooked. So in, in, in both patients, uh, anemia needs to have further investigation. Some risk factors. So um, age is certainly one of them. Uh, individuals over 60 in the United States um, have a higher prevalence than the usual age group. Um, and uh, uh, genetics is uh, often a risk factor as well. Um, in terms of gender, it's about equal in men and women, but a little bit higher um, in men. Um, and, and having these discussions about uh, uh, genetics and family history is really important. Um, I find that in our community, especially I'm talking about your, your family's past medical history, especially when it comes to cancer, is a little bit of a taboo. So knowing your family history is very important. That can change the age at which you have your screening test. Um, and about 30% of the colon cancers in the United States are um, in individuals who have a family history of colon cancer. But the majority of the people do not. So that's very important to know as well. In terms of risk factors, obesity, um, diets that are high in red meat and processed meats like bacon and luncheon meat. Um, of course, uh, tobacco use is uh, just about implicated in every cancer that you could name and um, excessive alcohol use. And um, that's defined by uh, the Internal Medicine Association as um, a woman who drinks more than two drinks per day, which I, seems kind of a lot to me, but, um, and a man who drinks more than uh, three drinks per day. Um, also having a sedentary lifestyle, um, lack of uh, physical exercise um, also is a risk factor.
So this, this slide is a little bit busy, um, not meant for anyone to read it, but just to notate that um, there was, uh, in, in the 1980s, uh, initially when colon cancer screening was kind of standardized and put into place, um, there was a decrease in the, the, the incidence of colon cancer in the United States. And that's evidence that screening does work. Um, but more recently around the year 2000, it seems there was an uptick in patients between the age of 20 and 49. And for that reason, um, in October of 2021, um, the official age uh, for screening for colon cancer was lowered um, to 45. So everyone should know that. Um, in general, in the past, uh, uh, Black men and women have been considered um, a high risk group. Um, and for that reason, um, it, it's always been 45, but not published. Um, it hasn't been well known and people haven't talked about it a lot. So um, um, to, to reiter reiterate, um, so uh, average risk screening for someone who does not have a family history starts at the age of 45. Um, and, for, and screening can go on um, into the age of 75 or even older, um, depending on the, the, the person themselves. So if you're a healthy 75 year old and you, we can predict that you have about a 10 year, 10 more years to live um, uh, it, then, and you can tolerate the procedure, then it's considered worthwhile. Um, for individuals who have a first degree relative less than the age of 60, um, or with a history of colon cancer or polyps, um, their screening should start at the age of 40 and every five years thereafter. If, you're fit, if your first degree uh, relative has uh, colon cancer or polyps older than uh, the age of 60, then um, again, their, their screening can start at, at 40, but the follow-up colonoscopies uh, will, will be scheduled depending on the findings of the initial colonoscopy. In terms of other options um, besides uh, colonoscopy for colon cancer screening, there's also, uh, to be clear, the colonoscopy is considered the gold standard. Um, there may be certain situations or patient preference or medical history that might um, kind of preclude that. And so fit uh, DNA testing is, is, is an option. And so that's, that's the, the Cologuard test that is on the commercials. And that's a stool test. Um, so if, if it's negative, uh, you repeat it in three years after the initial. And if it's positive, you, you still have to go on to colonoscopy anyway. Um, kind of like a less frequently used uh, option is a, a CT colonography. Um, it's kind of a fancy CT scan to look at the to look at the colon, and that can be done every five to ten years. But the um, the uh, insurance coverage for that is often often limited. So if you are if you meet any of these criteria, uh, you get a colonoscopy. But of course, also not to overlook um, if you have symptoms at any age, uh, it needs to be discussed with a, a healthcare provider and um, it needs to be investigated, no matter what your symptoms are. I don't assume that um, blood per rectum is, is, is from hemorrhoids, but really uh, try to go talk to someone about your options. I'm sorry. Um, my mouse is a little sensitive. So um, with regard for getting ready for a colonoscopy, um, uh, the day before, uh, you would have a, a clear liquid diet fast, uh, no solid food to eat, 
And typical clear liquid diets include uh, tea, coffee without milk, Gatorade, ginger ale, chicken broth, water, and jello. Um, avoid any clear alcohols, of course. Um, and then you'll get a prep. So what I often hear is people complain that they've heard from older people um, that the prep is not, uh, doesn't taste good and is, is difficult to, to tolerate. So this is a prep that probably our mothers and fathers uh, used, but, um, and it's, it's still available for certain situations, um, but we have better preps now that are better tasting and low volume and um, you know easier to, to deal with. So don't let the prep kind of scare you away from doing um, what you need to do for yourself. So just an idea of what, what happens, uh, you, after your prep, uh, you go into your, your facility, whether it be associated with a hospital or some facilities, like the one I work in is independent of a hospital and typically for uh, you know, young healthy people that don't really have a complicated medical history, um, you are, are uh, managed uh, by a, a, a licensed anesthesiologist uh, or nurse anesthetist who um, puts you to sleep typically with um, propofol where you're completely asleep and your vital signs are monitored continuously throughout the whole procedure. Um, we use a, a flexible tube. It has a, a camera and a light at the end that's inserted into the anus and it's moved around the entirety of the colon. Once we get to the beginning of the colon, we come back and uh, continue the exam. And if we find any polyps, which is what we're looking for, um, uh, we, we can remove them in the same procedure. Um, some, in, in some circumstances, if polyps are very large, um, you, you may have to have a follow-up procedure to have that uh, addressed in a hospital setting. Um, but for the most part, in general, most of them we can remove. So uh, just to get into what a polyp is, it's a, a small abnormal growth of tissue. Um, there's different types of polyps, but the ones that are kind of like what we're looking for during colon cancer screening, um, well, we take out any ones that we see, but the ones that uh, kind of you know, mitigate your risk for colon cancer are um, adenomatous polyps. And those polyps have the potential to become colon cancers. And so that's why it's so important uh, to do that and to remove them. Um, excuse me. Um, and uh, um, colon cancer screening is, is a lot different from other cancer screenings and, and quite remarkable if you think about it. Um, in other cancer screenings, you're actually looking for a cancer. Uh, in, in colonoscopy screening, we're looking for something that is benign that has the potential to become a cancer. Um, so um, I think it's even more valuable because of that. And I know Dr. O'Connor is going to, I saw a slide that she has, so I'm gonna move on from this way. <laughs> so uh, this is just to make a, a comment about COVID and, and screening. Um, during the height of COVID, everybody was inside procedure centers were shut, were shut down. Um, a lot of offices were shut down and that's had, you know, it's going to, it, it has had a huge impact um, on, on what's to come. Um, there were about a 90% decrease in, in colonoscopies and that's estimated about 18,000 missed um, colonoscopies uh, in the States. So, um, you know, if, if, you've, if you've been, you know, away on lockdown or if you've, you know, been working from home and not going out, um, know that at this point, especially 
it's time to get back out there and do what you need to do for your health. And on top of that, we've, we have certain measures put in place uh, to, to uh, ensure your safety. Um, and for instance, the, the space that I work in, all of the, the staff, the nurses, the doctors, um, even the desk staff, they're all required to be vaccinated um, and everyone gets screened um, coming to work. If you have symptoms, uh, you, you're sent home immediately. Um, in terms of the waiting room areas, um, everyone who is sitting there is someone who's either vaccinated already or has uh, had to have a test in order to have their procedure done. So the waiting area consists of um, people who don't, uh, who have a, a, a lower risk. Um, okay. So some take home facts, I kind of skipped a little bit of this in the beginning. Um, so colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. Um, it can start without symptoms. Screening for average risk individuals with no family history starts at 45. Uh, colonoscopy is painless um, and low risk. Um, and uh, colon cancer is preventable and treatable. And in terms of COVID, we have precautions in place to um, ensure your safety. And, and, you know, I don't know, when you, when you Google uh, colonoscopies, you often see pictures that uh, don't depict us. And so I just wanted to give another, uh, I mean, if you look at the panel, you see that, um, you know, we, we exist in these spaces and there's people that look like you and you should feel comfortable, you should feel safe. Um, you should be confident that um, you're being well taken care of. Um, not that you can't be by other individuals, but some of some people that feel uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, um, um, we're, we're out here and uh, uh, we look forward to seeing you. All right, I'm done. Thank you so much. Dr. Sequenu for that valuable information. I'm just gonna share a few of my takeaways and I hope you're taking notes and gathering your own takeaways. There's been a five-year decrease. So whereas before colonoscopy screenings were required at age 50, it's now 45, right? So let's keep that in mind. And then also for me, anemia is a risk factor. Hearing that information was new for me. So that's one of my takeaways. So I said, be sure to gather your own takeaways in your note catcher. So we're going to transition to Dr. O'Connor, who is a colorectal surgeon, and she's gonna share some valuable information with us. Dr. O'Connor. Thank you. Okay, I am a firm believer that repetition is key. So you'll hear some of the same themes in this uh, talk as well. And it's important. And if you have any questions, this is an open, warm, safe forum. Please put them in the chat, raise your hand. I'm Dr. O'Connor and I'm very blessed and thankful to be here to speak with you. And we're gonna go into colorectal cancer and screening. When you look at colorectal cancer, it's either the second, sometimes quoted as the third most common cancer that's diagnosed in the entire United States. So men do have a slightly higher incidence than women. However, since women live longer, it kind of evens itself out. Now, when you look at the number of colorectal cancer cases that's estimated in this year alone, it's about 151,000 new cases. And about a third of that number are people who will die this year because of colorectal cancer. Now, the majority of patients who get colorectal cancer are 50 years of age or older. 
But as we heard earlier, we're seeing more and more cases in younger people. 12% of those new cases that are diagnosed will be in people who are under the age of 50. But good news is we've got a lot of aggressive screening, patient education, and the rates of colorectal cancer deaths has steadily been on the decline. The bad news is not so for African-Americans. We have the highest incidence and death rate of colorectal cancer than any other ethnic or racial group. And for the most part, when you're looking at most other kinds of cancers, so we talked about prostate, we're up there in the numbers. So you wanna think about why the higher incidence rate. And we talked about some of these. Diet and nutritional factors, diets that are high in saturated fats, diets that are high in those processed meats, those are ones that are going to have a higher incidence rate. Physical inactivity, we are more of a sedentary lifestyle now. We can Uber Eats, we can um, Uber everywhere, we don't, we're not working. And with the two years of the pandemic, we were shut in. So we're not going to the gyms, we're not working out, we're not active, we're at home. And that physical inactivity will take a toll. Increased smoking rates, clearly with any cancer, tobacco use, um, uh, vaping, um, um, any type of, of tobacco product is a no-no because that can increase the incidence rates of your colon cancer. And also low, lower use of diagnostic testing because there is a, a, an understandable mistrust sometimes in the African-American community and the Afro-Caribbean community with the healthcare system based on the history that we've had. And there are sometimes we're not, the disparities uh, and access to care is not there. So that results in variability in screening rates, and lower use of diagnostic testing. And then Dr. Quaino also touched on some of the misconceptions that we have about the uh, PrEP and about the procedure for colonoscopies. So all of those things may increase the incidence rate of colon cancer and prevent us from getting those screening colonoscopies because we're scared to go to sleep. We're scared of the anesthesia. We don't wanna have the PrEP and we don't wanna be what we call violated with a colonoscopy. So all of those misconceptions can contribute toward us not getting the care that we need. But one of the main reasons of death rates for colorectal cancer are higher in African-Americans as we are not being screened for the disease as often as other populations. In fact, one third of all eligible adults who are eligible to be screened are not screened at all. So when you look at colorectal cancer in African-Americans, when it's diagnosed at an early stage, that means it's localized, the survival rate is 84%. Overall, early stage survival is 90%. But when you're looking at African-Americans, if we get diagnosed very early, our survival rate is 84%. The problem is only 33% of those cancers are detected at that localized stage. So that's why screening is so important. And this is a picture of the staging. When you look at stage zero on the far left, that's someone whose cancer is, is actually early stage confined to the wall. When you have early stage, stage zero confined to the wall, you're looking at a 95%, 90% to 95% survival, five-year survival. So meaning after you're diagnosed and this is removed, you're at, you're at five years, 95% of people will be alive. Now, if you move toward the right of the screen and you look at stage three, you can see that that tumor has actually gone through the wall and it's spread to localized reach lymph nodes. That's stage three. That's when your survival rate dips and you're down to at least 50 to 60% survival. Stage four, when it spreads to other organs such as the liver, the lung, our survival rate's going down to 20%, maybe 30 if that. 
So again, this is why screening is so important because you wanna get a cancer, you wanna get a polyp before it turns into a cancer or you wanna get it at an earlier stage. So just going over some of the signs and symptoms once again, you have to understand that the majority of patients who present with colorectal cancer have no signs or symptoms at all. 75% of the people that we diagnose with colorectal cancer, no signs, no symptoms. So that's why screening is key because you wanna get this done before there are signs and symptoms. And when you start seeing a sign or a symptom, that means that likely it is advanced. So advanced stages initial partial obstruction. That means that the cancer has gotten large enough where the stool's not coming through normally. So instead of seeing normal full body, full body full stools, you may see small pencil thin skinnier stools. So that's a change in bowel habits. Your bowel habits are changing. And then you may become a little bit more constipated. Why? Because you can't get the stool through and you can't get it past that, that mass or that large polyp. Then you might see rectal bleeding. Why? Because that, that stool that's passing through that cancer or passing by that polyp is irritating that area. And then that's when you may have some bleeding. And if the cancer or the polyp gets large enough, you can start feeling some abdominal pain. And as a result of that, you're just not hungry. You don't wanna eat. And that's what we call early satiety. And that's basically, you just get full quickly. And then that leads to weight loss. So all of these things are interactional and all these things lead to the signs and symptoms, unfortunately, usually advanced disease. Just because you may have the sign or symptom doesn't necessarily mean you have colon cancer, but it's something for you to understand, hey, let me see my doctor. Let me see what's going on. And when you're talking about bleeding and constipation, this is something that's sustained. Like over a two week period, you've got to go get that looked at. Now we're talking about risk groups. And as we heard again, the rage for colorectal cancer has been decreased from 50 to 45. So 45 is the new 50. I often think because now everyone's at 45, African-Americans should really be at 40, but 45 is the age. Minimal risk is anyone less than 45 with no family history and no signs and symptoms. You get to a low risk group, someone who's 45 years of age and no GI symptoms. None of the symptoms that I talked about. That's the low risk average person who needs to get screened. Now you become a moderate risk group if you've had a previous polyp or cancer, if you have a family history and a first degree relative. And when we're talking about first degree relatives, we're talking about mom, dad, brother, and sister. It's still important because families are smaller now to know the history of uncle Bob and, and, and your aunties and, and grandma and grandpa and your cousins because our families are smaller now. So it's important to make sure that we know the history of everyone. As a, as, as a culture, we usually don't like to talk about that but it's time we start. And in moderate risk is any of those GI symptoms. We talked about um, uh, uh, some of the genetic components and those are usually high risk. About 25% of people have a genetic predisposition and that's some of them such as familial polyposis, Lynch syndrome, people who have inflammatory bowel disease such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Those are people who are at high risk and those are people who may need to be screened sooner. And if you have a family history, you may need to be screened sooner. They usually say 10 years since the index case. So in other words, if mom or dad was diagnosed with a colon cancer at 45, you should start screening at 35. Now, there are a whole host of screening tests that are out there. My 
my, what I tell my patients is the best test is the one that's done. And when you're looking at a fecal occult blood test, I'm sure some of the older folks who are on here who've gone to the doctor and you get this little kit and they give you a little popsicle stick and you're supposed to poop in the toilet and take a little bit of that um, stool and put it on the stick and you send it away. This, is a, this test is, it's a test, but it's not the best test. And the reason it's not the best test is because when you're using the fecal occult blood test, certain things can give you a false positive, meaning that there is blood, but there's not. And it could be if you're on your menstrual cycle, if you're eating certain foods, such as beets, if you're on certain medications, such as aspirin. Um, and it's also supposed to pick up blood, but unfortunately polyps and um, cancers don't bleed every day and they don't bleed at the same rate. And you may even actually take a piece of the stool that doesn't have blood in it, so you get a false negative. A flexible sigmoidoscopy is one of, I'll show you what we're talking about later on in the talk, but it's a half of a colonoscopy and it only looks at half of the colon. Sometimes people thought if we combine the flexible occult, a blood test and the flexible sigmoidoscopy, we'd get a bit more accurate test. They still have limitations. And we're really not doing double contrast barium enemas anymore, but in the interest of time, I wanna speak mostly to colonoscopy because that is the gold standard. This is an example of a colonoscope. It's about five to six feet long. It looks at your entire colon and the average colon doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman is anywhere from five to six feet long. That is the pathway of the colonoscope. You can see all the small bowel in the middle, that's about 20 to 25 feet. We generally do not look at that, but we look at the entire colon. And when you're doing a colonoscopy, this is the only modality that is both diagnostic and therapeutic. Diagnostic meaning we can, we can see visually there's a polyp or there's a mass. Therapeutic meaning we can remove the polyp or biopsy the mass right then and there. This is an example of what I see when I'm doing the colonoscopies on my patients. The polyp on the far left, that could be an early size polyp because it's still flesh colored, it's small. We put a, um, a, uh, a flexible snare in there and you'd burn that polyp off. The polyp on the lower right is a little bit more advanced. You can see it's red, has more of a villous structure. It looks a little bit angry. That's a polyp that I'm a little concerned about. And polyps like this can harbor a cancer in them. So that's why screening, if we can remove this, there's no need for surgery. This unfortunately is a patient that waited a little too long that I had. And you can see on the far right of this, all of this is, is, is uh, cancer. All of that on the far right is cancer. And you can see how much of a small lumen opening there is. And that's why when the stool comes through, it's a lot thinner. And that's why you have the skinnier pencil thin stools. And also when the stool is brushing past, now you can see why it may bleed. And as you can see how large it is, and that's why you may have some of that abdominal discomfort. And that's why you get constipated and don't wanna eat as much because the stool can't come through. So that's, that's an example of what I see sometimes when I'm operating. So there are risk factors that we can control. Again, getting rid of those diets high in saturated fat. I know McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell may be good, but they're not your friends. Eating right, exercising, fruits, vegetables, and fiber, whole grains, the Mediterranean diet, that's what we're looking for. When you're choosing your food, you wanna eat the rainbow. Like if you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, you've got that beige meat, you've got that beige um, mashed potatoes, and you have that beige roll. That is not eating the rainbow. You want a variety of foods on your plate. Excessive alcohol intake is not good. Studies have now shown it's really one glass of women, a glass of wine, hard liquor or beer for men, 
and one for women. Anything above that can help is, is a risk factor. And I talked about that sedentary lifestyle. If you can just exercise 30 minutes a day, five days a week, that can significantly reduce your risk of colorectal cancer, even 75 minutes a day. And it doesn't have to be a hardcore gym workout. If you're doing 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 10 minutes at night, that's perfectly fine. If you can get in two days of weight training, you're doing what you need to do. Studies have also shown that people who have had colorectal cancer that hasn't spread can reduce their risk of recurrence by 50% just by exercising. And as we said before, smoking is a no-no for anything, whether it's um, oral tobacco or, 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 or uh, smokeless or, or, or marijuana or you know, regular cigarettes and pipe, none of that is, is, all of that is a risk factor. So I just wanna thank you. This is where my offices are. If you have any questions that you don't wanna ask online, feel free to call. We are here to help. This is our community. These are our people. And this is what we need to do to get ourselves educated, empowered, and keep ourselves safe. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor, for that great presentation. You know, something that struck me is um, we've all survived the pandemic, right? And so we are, and I'm, I'm grateful to see all these beautiful faces and some of the things that we need to do to make sure that our bodies, that we stay alive, right? We stay well, eat the rainbow. Yes, right? remember that, Ooh. remember anything, eat the rainbow. Eat the rainbow. So all the green things and the yellow things and the orange things, those are the things that are great for us um, and move right? We've yes. got to move our bodies. And so whatever form that takes for you, whether it be Zumba or a walk, a dance, a bike, find that thing that you can do and that you can continue, you know, the thing that gets you for real. I have my things, get your things, get your times and do it and do it consistently because it has a positive impact for your overall health. Um, just want to um, check in with the chat really quickly, I want to thank W. Gibbs for being so open and honest with us today about her own family history with um, colorectal cancer, for Danae and Chanel sharing about their own colonoscopy experiences. And um, W. Gibbs has a question. I know we have a question section, but I really do want us to tap into this really quickly before I have um, Dr. Lizette share. And so because she has um, a family history of colorectal cancer. Her question is, she had her initial colonoscopy at 51, was told to return um, in 10 years, but however, since then she's had a sibling diagnosed with colon cancer. Should she get another one at the five year mark or wait until 61? So either- I, What I tell my patients, especially those who may have had polyps of their own, or who have a family history that I think 10 years is too long. And I think Dr. Quaino can attest to that, that we're seeing recurrences a lot sooner, especially someone who's a, a first degree relative who's been diagnosed with it, I would go at the five-year mark. Some of my patients who may have a very large polyp that Dr. Quaino was talking about has to come back and get it chipped away at, they may need to come back in three years, they may even need to come back in one year. But I would let my patients know in this situation, I'd have them return in five years. 
Thank you so much. And at this time, we wanted to introduce um, Dr. Lizette and give her an opportunity to share her personal story um, of dealing with colorectal cancer and this beautiful team that she has with her. So Dr. Lizette, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. Um, and I actually go by uh, Dr. Liz. Um, yes, this is part of my medical team. Um, and both of them are also my sorority sisters. Uh, Dr. Quino is my actual GI and she just did a colonoscopy not too long ago. Um, and I met um, Cynthia uh, through this journey. I actually met her on Twitter um, back in 2019 when I was first diagnosed. And so I believe in keeping doctors around because I talk to them all the time when I have questions. And yes, if you have a family member, you should get a, a colonoscopy uh, before the 10 year mark. Uh, it's super important. I have several siblings. I've been telling them to get it constantly. So let me go back and tell you my story. So in 2018, um, December to be exact, I, start, I ended my doctoral studies at Sage College and I started to not feel well at that point. I started to, um, literally a week after doing my dissertation, I broke out in hives. And for three years, I was working full-time as a principal. I was a master principal at the same time, so I was helping mentor brand new principals. I was a leadership um, consultant doing another side gig. I had a lot of side gigs and doing my doctoral studies at the same time and running my school. And so my body just literally broke down where I was exhausted. I broke out in hives. I was like, okay. So I took two weeks off from work and I felt better. And that was it. A month later, I started to feel nauseous a lot and couldn't figure out, I'm not that type of person that gets very nauseous. Um, my eating habits began to change. And this went on for quite some time and I kept going to urgent care. Um, and urgent care is very quick. Sometimes it's hard to get an appointment with your general doctor. And so, you know, urgent care, you pay the $50 and you go and get an appointment and they'll tell you, yeah, there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing, right? So because I worked with kids, um, they kept assuming that there was just like some kind of bug that I got from one of the little ones. You know, when you're a principal, kids hug you all the time and you catch whatever they have. And so for that went on for quite some time. May 3rd, 2019 was the date of the state math test. And those of us who are educators, you know, as a principal, you need to be there and sign up that everything went okay. That is the one way that New York City can get rid of you as a principal very quickly if things do not go correctly. So I woke up that day with 104 fever and still drove myself to work. I have a soap in my, in my office. I kind of laid there for most of the day. My AP took care of testing, but I was sick and, and throwing up. Um, but I refused to leave because of state tests. I was like, nope, I'm keeping this job because I'm almost at the end of the rainbow. I can see um, retirement soon. And so we're not gonna leave early because of, because of testing. But then I, I just really physically could not do anything else that day. So my secretary drove me to Brooklyn, my school's in Harlem. I laid down for a little bit. Then I went to urgent care that night and the doctor in urgent care said, we gotta call an ambulance for you. You need immediate surgery. And he at that time said that he thought and couldn't be um, sure until I got a call not to be that I had diverticulitis. So I went um, to NYU um, emergency room, downtown Brooklyn, and I had a colonoscopy. And then there, the doctors there also said they thought I had diverticulitis. And, and because I was so acute, they wanted to do um, surgery because I had an abscess. But then by top, and that particular hospital doesn't have um, hospital rooms. It only has the emergency room. So I had to go to a different NYU by ambulance that same night. But by that time I had stabilized because of the antibiotics. And so they decided it was a Friday. So they decided to wait that Monday. My concern was I was going to be hooded that Saturday. So here I am Monday being told I'm going to have surgery. I'm supposed to be in Albany that Saturday to get hooded for my, uh, my doctorate. I'm like, wait, this is a lot going on. I have planned a huge, those who know me on this panel know I'm big on parties. I planned this huge party in Albany and I'm like, I'm about to have major surgery. 
ended up having that surgery the Monday, canceled everything. And then four days later, I started to feel a little bit better, but I had these two dreams coming out of me, but there happened to be an African-American nurse as part of my team. And she was like, listen here, sis, I don't care what's going on with you. We're going to get you well enough to go to Albany for your graduation. And if you need to come back to this hospital on Sunday, then that's what you have to do. So yes, that's what they did. They gave me a walker to teach me how to walk because I really couldn't walk. I was so weak because in the time that I had been getting sick, I lost a lot of weight very quickly. And I'm still being told I had diverticulitis. Even after having surgery, I'm still being told I had diverticulitis. They gave me a walker. I had a walker at graduation, got hooded, everything. That Sunday night, I ended up back in the emergency room. Still throwing up, very weak, passing out. This went on for four months of constantly being, going to the emergency room, constantly throwing up, constantly not feeling well. I had 12 um, CAT scans during this time. So 11 doctors constantly in the emergency room and every single doctor kept saying I had diverticulitis. And it wasn't until I said, okay, I am done with this. Cause at this point I'm not, I can't even go to work. So I'm just trying to figure out what's going on and how do I get better? Cause this is a bit ridiculous. So I started calling, literally Googling GI doctors, but I need to figure out what's going on. I'm being told I need a colonoscopy. Had not ever had one at that time, because at that time, in 2018, 2019, the recommendation was that you get one at age 50. The recommendation just changed a year ago. So I wasn't old enough to have a colonoscopy at that point. Um, I went to one GI in Staten Island. He said I was too acute to have a colonoscopy at that point. Ended up going to Maimonides and meeting Dr. Um, Rebecca Reed, who, and I had copies of all my CAT scans on a CD. I'm walking around the street, literally taking my CAT scans with me to any GI doctor that will look at it, any oncologist that will look at it, any, any doctor in this field, right? So I went to her office, met with her. She looked at all of the CAT scans, like you need to have colon reception surgery immediately. So July 23rd of that year is when I had surgery, colon reception. And on the operating table, she knew then and there that I had cancer. When she came into my room that night, she didn't want to tell me, um, because just in case maybe it was something else, right? So they had to send it to pathology first to confirm that it is. So a couple of days later, she gets a pathology report and I go in her office August 5th and she does tell me there that it was stage two colon cancer. So then I begin, um, I think it's like August 16th, I think I started um, infusions. So I had to go in that time to get a port. I actually have a port here. I'm sorry for seeing my bras. Only women here, it's okay, we all have bras. Um, and so I started to get infusions every two weeks, but even that was very um, taxing on my body. So they ended up spacing it out to every three weeks because I was extremely sick. Neuropathy came from me, which is um, some nerve damage in my right leg, primarily the numbness in my fingers and my toes. It started happening after round two of getting uh, chemotherapy. And because it became one so hard where I really literally couldn't walk, my mother would come, my best friend, my family. I literally had someone with me going to get my chemo sessions and stay with me because I would have chemo from that, like that Friday until that Sunday where the nurse would come in and take me off the machine and literally help me just live because I couldn't walk because my side effects were so, so hard. And so they spaced it out to three weeks. It got a little bit better, but to be honest with you, here it is uh, 2022, I still have horrible side effects. So fast forward to April, I have my last round um, of chemo. And then the following May, you go get tests, blood tests and colonoscopy, uh, not a colonoscopy, I had CAT scan and a PET scan. And then I was deemed to be um, cancer-free. So every month and a half, I would still go get blood work and other tests just to make sure I was still cancer-free. And then fast forward to July, 
first I went back to work after being out of work for 14 months dealing with all of this. So still take going, taking tests. And so for about a year, I was cancer free. And unfortunately last summer in um, July, I found that the cancer had came back and how it had traveled to my liver. In order for the doctors to get to it, they had to remove my entire gallbladder and part of my liver. And so since August, I've been back on chemo, but not in infusions. I actually take pills. I take six pills a day, three in the morning, three in the night, for 14 days straight, and then I'm off for seven days. And so this has been going on, as I said, since um, August. When I went back to work as a principal, um, it was in the height of the pandemic. And so a lot of kids had questions about, like, hey, can I hug you? We're a very hugging, touchy, touchy-feely kind of a school. But kids were afraid because they know, they've heard the word cancer, but didn't really understand what the word cancer was. And so I ended up buying a lot of children's books on cancer so I can read the stories to the kids. At that time in September, uh, we were doing um, lunch in the, in the classroom and I was supervising first grade. So I was with the first grades every single day for lunchtime. And they were the ones I was with all the time asking me questions all the time about my hair because I had uh, decided to shave my hair because my hair had fallen off. So that's where the mohawk came from. And so I bought a lot of books, but all the books were of Caucasian patients or teddy bears, one or the other, literally. There didn't seem to be any books that looked like me. So then I decided, well, I'm going to just write a book. And so I wrote a book, Little Lizzie, and a big group array, just because my students had questions and I didn't really have the answers. And I always feel it's easier to answer questions through children's book. And so I wrote this book to help my own students um, just deal with the, their principal having cancer. And so out of that though, out of the, having the book, a lot of my parents have divulged to me that they have cancer. And so I've been meeting with them on a regular basis, helping them get resources, helping the kids deal with the fact that some of their parents or family members have cancer. And depending on the stage, I have one um, student now, his mom's stage four. And so just getting him outside services beyond our guidance counselor, and just we all are as a community just checking in on him on a regular basis just to make sure that he's okay mentally, right? Because his life is changing very quickly. But she found it at a very late stage. Um, when I was getting chemo, I felt, um, I felt very sad because I wasn't around my kids. Because when you open a school, when you write the proposal and you open your own school, it's just like birthing a child, right? So it was my, it's like my baby. And so during that time, I started to do a lot of read-alouds to the kids and recording them. And that's how uh, Reading with Dr. Liz, my YouTube channel, came about. But my kids were not doing a lot of reading because I wasn't the cheerleader as I had been for 14 years making sure that they were always reading. And so I ended up having to tell my own story about my reading challenges. And that's how my first book came about, which is uh, Little Lizzie Learns to Read. So there I told kids like, hey, it's okay to have challenges in life. Same way I have a challenge now with uh, cancer. I had a reading challenge when I was six years old. And we all have the ability to overcome these obstacles as long as we persevere and have grit. And so that's how this first book came about. And I just saw that these two books have been a tremendous help in my own community and the large communities. Last month, I had a fundraiser for the entire month of March, which is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. I raised over $12,000 where I was able to send books to schools, send books to children's hospitals. I sent over $1,000 to the Colon Cancer Alliance as a donation just based on the funds that I raised. Because I'm really here just to tell people my stories in hopes that this doesn't happen to anyone else. No one has to live with cancer the way I live with it every day. Thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for sharing your story, for your transparency, for your openness, for your honesty, for inviting us into this very intimate story that you have. Um, I am I'm so processing because I'm taking away a lot of what you said. Um, and 
just as you were communicating and you were talking about your story, some questions kind of popped out for me. And I wanted to ask you, did you know this or do you know this disparity in care um, to you as a black woman? Like, because there were countless times where you were going to providers, like something is going on. It's not just what you're saying. Sorry, go ahead. Um, Throughout this whole journey, I've noticed difference in terms of my care. When I use my title as doctor, I get better care and I get faster Mm. care. Yeah, and, I, and I've said that a lot. My current oncologist, Dr. Ju, is actually doing a study about how her interns that she supervises is, is providing care. And she and I had a conversation last week about what does I as a patient need when I'm first coming into a cancer center? Like I switched oncologists on purpose. My previous oncologist mm-hmm. when I went through infusions didn't listen to me the way I felt he should have in terms of my side effects. I don't right. think my side effects would be as severe if had he had listened to what my concerns were with the fact that my leg hurts all the time. So now with mm-hmm. this particular doctor, she, I have 50 million tests. I think maybe she's overboard sometimes, but listen, I like to get to your point where I can <laughs> go back to being on Peloton, go back to doing my Zumba classes, right. right? So I'm constantly every week taking a different test just to figure out what's the best um, remedy for me in terms of my, every cancer patient is different. So what may work right. for somebody else doesn't mean it's going to work for me. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I believe, and I also think that um, when they see people of color, I really believe that we are treated differently in the medical field. Yeah. And it, it's important that... Um, Patients see people like me, patients see people like the two doctors are here and see that we are all here, you know, for you as a community to help you get through this. Yes, thank you. And before I open up to the other questions, I just want to ask you, what can you share with us um, as a way to self-advocate in the health field? Because I think you did an amazing job with self-advocacy. So what can you just empower us with that? Any tips, any insight? Don't be afraid to get a second, third opinion. I've seen uh, several doctors on this journey um, be vocal. I write letters. I write letters. I complain about every single thing under the sun. I write a lot of letters. Like when I was with my first oncologist, I remember when the DOE um, gave us the opportunity to work from home if you had pre-existing conditions. He told me I was fine to go back. Like, wait, I just finished chemo. What do you mean I could go back? And when this, you know, so I wrote to his boss. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the next day I had my letter saying, no, this person needs to, um, it's okay to go to somebody's boss. People go to my boss all the time when I do something they don't like, right? So it's okay to go ahead and complain in a professional, I'm always professional though. You know, I'm not right. cursing, I'm not screaming, I'm not getting loud because I don't want to have that persona as an angry black woman. I want to use my, my education to write a professional letter about my concerns about my care. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Liz. And you guys get her books, get her books. Um, so, let me just say that, mm-hmm. um, as I had my recent colonoscopy with Dr. Quino, the prep is so different. Cause even when I've had, I've had lots of colonoscopies now, right? I didn't have any before, before being diagnosed. I think her prep is the best I've ever had in this four, three year journey. And I just want to say thank you because it was just so easy this time. Awesome. Thank you is. so much. <laughs> I don't want to take credit for the prep. It's not my prep, but <laughs> it's uh, some improved preps that we have. <laughs> So it's not my personal prep, but it, it's new new stuff that's out there and it's available to uh, everyone. Well, I like to do stuff. I'm going to have to ask for that all the time now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to present some uh, viewer questions that we have. Um, this is to uh, our providers here on the line. Um, is seeing blood in my stool an immediate sign of colon, colon rectal cancer? No, when, when you see blood, you know, first of all, you should not have blood in your stool. It is not normal. A lot of people see blood and they think, oh, it's a hemorrhoid or it's a fissure, like, you know, and they leave it alone, especially women since they've given birth. 
So, but just because you have blood does not necessarily mean it's a, it's a colon cancer. 84% of people who have rectal bleeding, it's not a cancer, but it's something that needs to be looked at and it's something that needs to be checked out. Don't just ignore it and say it's a hemorrhoid, but it doesn't necessarily mean to go straight that I've got a colorectal cancer. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. How beneficial are colonics, um, Senna tablets or, or Senna tea or hydrotherapies for colon health? And can they reduce um, the impact of uh, colon rectal cancer? You know, I, I think we both have something to say about that. Um, so Either I, one, jump in. I think we both need to, because okay. she's, she's reading my mind. <laughs> um, I personally don't think that you need to do colonics or any of that. A lot of people think I need a clean colon. My colon should be cleansed. Mm -hmm. Your colon is only clean for the first hour of birth. After that, it is populated with all the good bacteria and bad bacteria that's in the world, especially if the child is breastfeeding. You need to have a level of good bacteria and a level of bad bacteria, and they, they live together side by side. If you're doing a colonic or a cleanse, you can disrupt that equal, equal, equilibrium, the symbiosis of those two bacteria, and then the bad bacteria can grow. Not to mention, if you are doing colonic, It seems like enemas, and those coffee enemas have they put them in they were hot um that 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 just your your body responds to fruits vegetables fiber water and goodness moving your bowels daily or every other day whichever is your normal you don't have to have colonic okay where is she frozen yeah, would you like to add? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Along uh, everything you said was absolutely on point. Um, just to add, I, I you know, I've, I've never had a colonic and I never will. Um, I don't know what that apparatus is. How do they clean it? How they clean the tubing between patient uh, between patients? Um, and it's blindly inserted, as as far as I know. Um, and uh, I'm sure you know there's a risk for injury, a risk for perforation, tearing a hole in the bowel. Um, and um, I, I don't understand what the point of it is. Um, um, like Dr. O'Connor said, um, fruits, vegetables, water, exercise, and keep it moving. Okay, thank you. You know, the Caribbean mind in me is still trying to, because in our culture, you know, you got to drink your Senna tea or take your cascara or whatever that is. So is there a benefit to even just that with taking away the colonics or the colon hydrotherapy? Is that beneficial in of itself, kind of just doing a different form of intestinal flush? Um, so, so I guess the question is why and what what is what's the effect that's desired in the end? Um, the other thing is um, with Senna, um, it, it, it can discolor your colon. Um, it can cause a, something called melanosis coli where it turns the, the skin of the colon um, a darker shade. Um, which, is, you know, I guess is of no real consequence, but um, when you're going for your colon cancer screening, it's more difficult to see polyps when your colon is discolored that way. So it's not my favorite thing at all. Um, and it's not something that I prescribe. Um, 
but I get the whole thing. My grandma used to make me drink castor oil and you know all that stuff. We all have had that done. All but right. um, I don't think it actually, you know, it's a cultural thing that doesn't really serve us. You, that you well. have to also ask yourself what's going on that you're not having a normal bowel movement alone. Right. You know, why mm-hmm. do you need this excess? Why do you need some help? Why do you need some assistance? That's a that's a sign. That's a sign right. a symptom. Let's get this checked out. But also the type of foods you're eating, right? And also whether or not you're getting enough water in your system. So right. a lot of green leafy vegetables should be able to clear up whatever that issue is and a lot of water. I literally drink about 12 bottles of water a day. And I start my day off with um, acai berries, blueberries, and strawberries, and spinach as a, as a bowl. Um, and I make sure I have a high fiber diet throughout the day. Thank you. What do we think about stress? That's another question. Stress and the impact that it has on just not only the emotional part of our bodies, but also the physical part of our bodies. And what role, if any, do we think that it plays on um, medical diagnosis and even maybe, um, you know, how we can recover from medical diagnosis such as colorectal cancer? So stress is, is very key and stress is important, but stress sometimes gets a bad rap because mm. there is good stress and there is bad stress. So when you have that good stress, you got that deadline, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're grinding, you're getting it out and you're done and the deadline's over. That means you had that stress response and it went down. Yeah. But when you're talking about bad stress, that's when you have that stress response and it's sustained. And when it's sustained is when it has that horrible effect on your body or when it just keeps coming in and going. And it really does affect our immune system. It affects our ability to um, react to certain diseases. It affects our ability to be able to combat and fight certain diseases. It's also associated with depression. And there are studies that show depression has an effect as well on how well we are able to um, defend ourselves from outside insults. So there is not a direct line that because you're stressed, you get cancer, but stress has a, has a negative effect on our body and our body's immune system. And also we're not, and when we're stressed, we don't sleep right. There are some studies that have shown people who get less than six to seven hours of sleep have a high risk of adenomas. When we're mm-hmm. stressed, we don't eat right. We're looking for the comfort foods. So as Dr. Uh, 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 Liz said, and as Dr. Quano said, we're not getting the fruits, the vegetables, the fiber and the water that we need to take. So those, those things of stress have a outside peripheral effect that can also affect the risk factors that we were talking about. Absolutely, thank you. Um, if you could, because this is another question, I think it was covered in uh, either one of you of the, as medical uh, professionals here. Um, what, sorry, um, is there a specific age range that it becomes more prevalent or specific for African-Americans, males and females? That the risk of uh, getting colorectal cancer becomes more prevalent for African-American male or females? Well, you, when you're looking at African-American males or females, for, for stage for stage, when we present, we present at more advanced stages. But mm-hmm. when you're looking at the population overall, even though we are seeing it in younger patients, it's more so a disease of the elderly. Now, 20 years ago, the average age of diagnosis was 72. It's now down to 66. So as we get older, we do have a higher risk of having a colorectal cancer or an adenomatous polyp because we're living longer. 
and we're older, which is why you need to have the screening colonoscopies. So the younger you are, you know, your risk is, is still there, but it's really at risk of older population. Okay. I want to add on to that though, because I um, am an ambassador for colon cancer with several organizations. I'm getting ready to do an event with um, Craig Melvin. A lot of the people who are um, attending these events are younger because they're experiencing some kind of health issue that um, some of the symptoms seem to be leaning towards colon cancer, right? And we know that there have been high profile um, people that have died in their younger ages. So there was a young woman who passed away this week. Uh, she was 31, you know, Chadwick Bozeman, he was young. I just say to people that listen to your body, you know, I was 48 when I started to have symptoms. And so it's important that we listen to what our body, this is something's going on in your body that's not your norm, then immediately go seek medical professional um, assistance to find out what's happening. Thank you. Um, and uh, can hemorrhoids lead to poor colon health? Can we just ask, what are some of those early oh. symptoms? If one of you could just repeat, because since Dr. Lizette just shared that there were early symptoms that had gone unchecked early on, are there some early symptoms that you should, that you can share that we can be aware of? I think uh, to just to reiterate what Dr. O'Connor said earlier, uh, in the earliest stages, there's often no symptoms, right? And then uh, kind of the, the early symptoms, quote unquote, come along with more advanced disease. So you're talking about blood rectum, weight loss, um, abdominal pains, um, feeling full early after eating. Um, yeah, um, change in bowel habits as well. Thank you. And, and what about for me? So it was more of digestive issues. It wasn't so much of the bowel issues. It was more like uh, when I would eat, I literally couldn't keep any food down. I was literally throwing up every single day for every meal for about two weeks. Okay. And if you want, if you, you're thinking about when you're looking at Dr. Liz's symptoms, she had, uh, you know, a perforation because she had drained. So a lot of times people think diverticulitis is they don't realize that there's a cancer there and it's not just diverticulitis because on the left side of the colon, that's the narrowest portion. So that's where you most likely would have a diverticular attack. You can have it across the entire colon, but it's most likely on the left side. And I can't tell you how many times people come in and it's perforated diverticulitis, but I'm finding a cancer there. So she's perforated. So as a result of being perforated, I mean, there's a hole her body's going into, a, it's a disease state inside there and she's going into an ileus. And that means the bowels go to sleep. So that's why she's having the nausea, the vomiting and not wanting to have something done. So even though it's not lower symptoms, it's something that's wrong. It's something that's out of the ordinary and it's something that needs to be looked at. So my Can either, to, oh, sorry. Sorry. to piggyback on that, just before you guys transition. Um, also, if you, if you get diagnosed with diverticulitis, you have to have a colonoscopy afterwards for follow-up to make sure that is not actually a colon cancer, right? About six weeks after treatment, you should have a colonoscopy. Thank you. My, my question is going to be, could either one of you further um, define what diverticulitis is? Diverticulitis, yeah, diverticulitis, there are small pockets in the colon. If you, you can picture diverticulitis as when you're little and you were trying to blow up those balloons and you kept blowing and blowing and finally it pocketed out, but you had a headache. That's what happens with diverticulitis. 
Um, it can happen around the entire colon, like I showed you that whole five to six feet, but it's most commonly on the left side. And the reason it's most commonly on the left side, because that is the most narrowest portion of the colon. So then you have pressure, the narrow portion is going to pocket out and it pockets out on the weak areas. That's where the blood vessels come in. So that's why when you have diverticulosis, it can present with bleeding. And we're not talking about a little bit of bleeding. We're talking about a lot, like someone opened a jar of Smucker's grape jelly and dumped it in the toilet. That's mm -hmm. when you're gonna see that diverticular bleed. You're gonna to know to go to the hospital. You can also present with abdominal pain, most likely on the left side. It's enough to the point where you're kind of uncomfortable and you go to the hospital, you get the CAT scan, and most times only 10 to 15% of people need surgery for diverticulosis. It's, it's usually just a flare, antibiotics, and patients are done. But when you do have that attack, just like Dr. Quaino said, you wait that five to six weeks and you get your colonoscopy afterwards because you wanna make sure it really is just diverticulitis. Thank you. I think Dr. Lizette had a question in the chat. She wanted to um, know why are so many people misdiagnosed? As, as diverticulitis specifically. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the, the, the CAT scan findings uh, for diverticulitis um, include like surrounding inflammation. Um, if, if there is a perforation, if there's a if there's a hole in the bowel, there may be an associated abscess, which is a collection of fluid. Those findings are, are findings that you can find in both diseases, in diverticulitis mm -hmm. and colon cancer. And so that's why when someone is diagnosed with diverticulitis, they get treated to get the inflammation down. But then we routinely do a colonoscopy afterward to follow up and make sure there actually is no mass there. So my, my follow-up question to that is even after 14 scans, you still can't tell that it's, it's not diverticulitis and it's, it's cancer. Because like I said, I had 14 scans by the time I found a doctor who can di probably diagnose me. You know, uh, I know you don't want to talk bad about college. You should have misdiagnosed me. I'll say it was NYU. It's okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, of course, I don't have, you know, all the details of everything that, you know, you went through, like in terms of data and stuff, but um, it, it seems like an unfortunate situation that could have gone another way if, if, uh, I don't know, if, uh, <laughs> if uh, you got the attention that you needed, you know what I mean? Like if, um, it's, dif it's difficult to say in retrospect, but um I, I would hope, and I, I think that um, if someone like you uh, came to me or Dr. O'Connor, that both of us would do better for you. That's what I want to say. <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> Fourteen scans—that's that's that's, a, that's excessive. It's 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 too much. It's, it's yeah. Too much. yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so we have a question in the chat: um, Is GERD a symptom of colon rectal cancer? Um, this uh, our uh, person, the participant says she doesn't meet the age and she wants a colonoscopy. So what are some answers? So with regard to GERD, um, so if you have persistent heartburn um, and uh, you're a young person with normal labs and know what we call alarm features. So alarm features would be like pain with swallowing or maybe a little black stools, which is like, you know, 
blood in the stool, um, weight loss, or you know, significant history of alcohol and, and tobacco use. If you don't have any of those, you're a young, healthy person, normal labs, then it's reasonable for you to get treatment with antacids for about six to eight weeks. If you don't respond to that treatment afterwards, the concern is, well, what exactly is going on? Do you have inflammation of your esophagus um, that may, if it's chronic over your lifetime, um, increase your risk for esophageal cancer when you're older? Do you have um, a, a little anatomical an abnormality that might put you at higher risk for heartburn than someone else, like a hiatal hernia? Or is there a mass, uh, you know, in the esophagus? You know, you, you want to find out what exactly is going on. So it's not the colonoscopy, but the upper endoscopy, um, where you look into the mouth, down through the food pipe, into the stomach that you should get for heartburn symptoms, unless, you know, she's referring to something else. Okay. I think we have about two. Oh, okay. So she said she's had endoscopy. Okay. So the question about the colonoscopy, um, I guess we can talk on the side, yeah. <laughs> and I'm so glad you said that because I want all of, all of our participants to know that all of the information shared and even the contact information for both, um, for all three doctors on the panel, Dr. Caesar, Dr. O'Connor, and Dr. Sequainu will be made available to you in the chat and also via email if you registered. So any personal questions that you may not feel comfortable sharing here in this forum, know that you'll have their contact information to share with them one-on-one. -on -one. All right, we have a few more questions before uh, we wrap up the question portion. Um, can hemorrhoids lead to poor colon health and ultimately colon rectal cancer? So um, that's one of the things that I, I, that's bread and butter for a colorectal surgeon when you're looking at hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are not cancerous now. With that said, you can remove a hemorrhoid and there could be a cancer uh, that's lurking there, but because you have hemorrhoids, they do not cause nor do they lead to colon cancer. They're two separate entities, but hemorrhoids can contribute to poor colon health because you can have bleeding, pain, prolapse, the swelling, constipation, irritation, and that's gonna make, make you not want to eat it's gonna make you not want to move your bowels, it's gonna make you withhold stool, and then you have a whole milieu of everything that goes after that. So, you know, a lot of the things that go into colon cancer prevention, such as eating right and exercising, can also, and, and, and can also go into helping with hemorrhoids. You wanna avoid straining, you wanna avoid constipation, you wanna avoid sitting on the commode for prolonged periods of time. A lot of times we take our phones into the bathroom now. It's not the newspaper or an article. It's our phone. We're playing games or reading. Just you got to do your business and go. Do not sit on the toilet for prolonged periods of time because that can worsen hemorrhoids as well as straining. Awesome. Great information. And if you, um, either one of you medical professionals can reiterate, what is the recovery rate? Because we want to provide hope um, to our participants and let them know that, um, you know, if what the recovery rate is. I know in one of the slides, it was about 84% if it was caught fairly early, I think was um, one of the statistics that were I mentioned. So if that could just be reiterated. Yeah, you know, when, when people have colorectal cancer, it, all, it really depends on the stage, like I talked about, actually the location of the mm -hmm. cancer, because depending upon the location along the anus, the colon and the rectum, Will depend upon will determine the type of surgery you have and the type of recovery. But just in general, 
you know, the first week is the roughest week. Most patients usually get back to their normal selves between four to six weeks. If you catch this early, there is a 95% five-year survival. The longer and more advanced it is, the decreased risk, the decreased rates for survival, which is why this whole panel is key because it's trying to educate and alert screening saves lives. So Absolutely. when you get to the screening, this prevents the, you get the polyp, it prevents the camera, the, the cancer. And I know Can a lot of people, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Dr. O'Connor. And the last thing I want to say is I know a lot of people don't like the prep. And what I've always tell my patients is you can prep for me for colonoscopy or you can prep for me for surgery. Mm. Because you mm. you're going to have to prep. So right. mm. I'm going to use that line next. <laughs> <laughs> so how early is early? Because you said if it's detected early, then there's a 95% um, survival rate. So we're, we're talking about early in terms of the growth and the size of the polyp and its invasion and its invasion into the wall or through the wall of the cancer. So if you're getting a if you're getting a polyp that is still confined to the wall of the colon, then that's what we're calling early localized stages. But when you're waiting and you're 67 years of age and you're finally having these issues and that polyp could have grown through the wall and into the surrounding lymph nodes. And then from the lymph nodes is where it breaks off and goes to the distant metastases, such as the liver and the lung most commonly, sometimes the brain, but liver and lung. Right, right. So I'm hearing early detection. That's just was screaming at me. Yes. Screening as early as possible. And we want to take this time to thank each of you, Dr. Liz, Dr. O'Connor, Dr. Sequenu for taking, your taking the time this Saturday to spend with us and to educate us on the early prevention and care of our colons, right? And our rectums. So we thank you so much for this information. And we want to stay connected with each of you. So we ask that um, Sherwin, if you can, to just drop the information in the chat so that all participants can be able to access it. And to everyone that's on the call, just look out in your emails for their information because they will be available. Uh, yes, and I just, uh, go ahead. Please look in the chat. Dr. Essie Kwanu has put up a lot of resources to be able to find, um, you know, it's really key to find doctors that you connect with. And these are a lot of options for you. Um, Health in Her Hue, Therapy for Black Girls, Therapy for Black Men, Docs of Color. And um, if you are looking to find people that you may connect with more culturally as well as they are medical professionals, these are great resources. So thank you. And I was also going to add real quick too that for anyone that joined directly and did not register, I placed our email address in the chat as well. If you just send us an email with the subject line CRC, we can get you over any information that was presented, any key links, presentation, anything that's provided to us, we'll make sure we get that information out to you as well. Thank you. Back to you, Chanel. So we've got one more question in the chat and then we're gonna ask for final words from our three doctors on the line. Is your doctor supposed to refuse to check your colon if you've asked them to? He's asked twice and he was told that it's not necessary at his age. I, I can answer that with a, a, a short, story. I had a young girl in her 20s who uh, had blood rectum for over six months and kept being told that she had hemorrhoids. 
Um, and I did a colonoscopy. Thank God it wasn't cancer, but she had a really large polyp uh, in the left side of her colon that was bleeding. Um, and that polyp is the type of polyp that would have grown to become a colon cancer. So the lesson is you find someone who will listen to you. You have to advocate for yourself. I, and I wanna reiterate that um, because it is key. You And a lot of times when I find people who have had something that needed to either be removed or was a cancer, it's because they had to constantly advocate for themselves, especially the young. And when we look at young people, 82% of them are misdiagnosed because nobody's thinking about that. You got 73% of young onset colorectal cancer patients, yours, Dr. Quayna was lucky. They usually present with advanced stage disease because nobody's thinking about it. 67% of young patients have to see at least two or more doctors before they get their diagnosis. And 62% of them know, don't even have a family history. So you have to push. And if that doctor's not listening to you, you find somebody else. And all those resources that are in the chat are phenomenal. You find somebody else. Add on, one of my sorority sisters let me know a couple of weeks ago when I launched my, my new book, that because I tell my story so often, she decided to go get a colonoscopy. Um, and now she's 45 years old. Her doctor said, no, we'll wait till 50. It's not, it's not urgent. And she's like, no, I have a friend who is, you know, was sick before 50 and I really want to get it done. And he refused. So she went and found another doctor and she had polyps. And that doctor said in five years, it would have been cancer. And so she credits me for saving her life. I said, I didn't save your life. I said, you going on and being an advocate for yourself saved your life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Thank you both so much for sharing. I'm going to open it up for final words from each of you. Sherry Ann, did you have something you wanted to share before we? I just wanted to ask Dr. Lizette, um, or Dr. Liz rather, how um, she was coping mentally and emotionally in her journey. What were some of her go-tos to keep her um, just emotional and mental well-being um, in a really good place? So during my first cancer journey, um, I had my, my school community sent me letters and videos and I would send videos to them and my family. I have six siblings and they took turns coming here and going with me to, um, to get my infusions. And so I had a lot of support then. When I had to tell people the cancer was back, um, I found that they were more emotional than I was. And my family broke down a lot and cried a lot. Um, but I also found that I needed help at this point to deal with it. So I actually, I go to my mommy's cancer center and in that building is like the whole wellness. So there's a nutritionist, there's social workers, there's psychologists, psychiatrists. I started seeing a psychologist because um, I knew that when I was diagnosed the second time, that's around the time that Chadwick Boseman had died. I didn't know him, but I became hysterically crying all the time about him. One of my, um, my teachers also was diagnosed at the same time I was diagnosed. She passed away from colon cancer. So mm -hmm. I have survivor's remorse. So every time I hear or, or read about somebody else passing away from this disease and I'm still here living, I have a really hard time dealing with it. I begin to cry and I have a hard time just even dealing with life outside of, you know, just getting out of the bed. So I have a therapist so that I can talk through my emotions about why am I sad about me living, you know? Yeah. And I believe that the reason, right? I believe that God has put the disease in me so I can tell my story so that I, I can save other people's lives. But when I hear about people dying, it's really hard for me. So I do have a therapist and I, I'm a believer now that if you need therapy, it's okay. You know, black mm -hmm. people is a stigma to have therapy, right? But it's yeah. okay if you need to talk to someone, whether it be a therapist or friends or whatever, because a lot of people now, because I, I on this national platform, reach out to me, call me. I send cards all the time to people. Uh, I send my book all the time as an inspiration to them that uplift them. So it's okay to talk to people. 
um, prior to my neuropathy getting bad, I used to be an avid walker and um, on the bike for Peloton. Now my, my leg is killing me all the time, so I haven't exercised in a while. But exercise used to be my go-to, and of now and writing. I'm right. I'm working my third book right now, so writing has been my go-to as a therapy as well. Awesome, thank you. All right, so uh, Dr. O'Connor, do you have any final remarks? I just want to say thank you again for giving me this opportunity in this forum to do what I love to do best, which is educate and empower um, our, 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 our sisters, our brothers, our community. Um, the most important thing that I want you to take care take from this is you are in control of your health. You're armed with information. Do not let anybody stop you from taking care of yourself. Eat right, exercise, get screened. And most importantly, each and every one of you, if you share this with one or two people and then they share it with one or two people, think of how many people we've already touched. Yeah. Powerful, thank you so much. Dr. C. Kiyanu, I hope I pronounced it properly. What are your final remarks? I'll just piggyback on what she said. Uh, thank you so much for, being, uh, for inviting me. I had a great time talking um, and also, for people out there who've had their colonoscopies, share your experience with other people, especially if it's a good experience, because you don't often hear about that. I see, I see patients all the time that say, oh, my mom said she was in pain and this, that, the other thing. Most of the time you're completely asleep. You're not aware of what's going on. You're pain-free and you wake up and patients ask, when are we gonna start? Like, We're done already and here are your results. So, and, 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 and to, to add to that, you know, don't be afraid of the results, right? Because we've said so many times that the earlier you catch it, the better um, it, it is for you in terms of survival. So thank you. Thank you all so very much for taking this time and joining us for this special edition of Gospel Music Buzz. Chanel, I don't know if you have any final words before we wrap. I wanted to check in with Dr. Caesar to see if she had any final words. Oh, sorry. Um, I think the thing I would just remind everyone is to be your own advocate. Make sure that you are open and honest with your doctors about what's going on with your body. Um, and if you feel that you're not getting the best medical care, it, listen, there are thousands of doctors out there. Like I tell people in terms of being a principal in schools, there are thousands of schools in here. So you don't have to be at this particular school, nor do you have to be with that particular doctor. You need to do what's in the best interest of you and your body. And only you know that, right? So um, you know, just take care of you. And also I'm going to do a plug for my book because I'm still donating money to the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. So every time someone purchases Little Lizzie in the big blue parade, money is donated to cancer research. So please, please help me continue to do this fight because we are fighting together to save our lives. So I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone on this, on this conference. Thank you all. It would not have happened without all of you joining. At max, we had 33 people join on and the session will be made available so that you can rewatch it and be able to um, renew your own mind, right? And, and, and tap into some areas that you may have missed during the sessions, because I'm gonna do that, right? I'm gonna go back and watch it again because there's some parts that I wanna hear one more time. So I just want to thank everyone. Thank you to my co-hosts, Shemaine and Sherianne, my phenomenal blood, bloodline sisters. Thank you both so much for being on this journey with us. And thank you to Dr. Lynn, Dr. Caesar, and Dr. Liz, right, I should say, and, and Dr. Sequini. Thank you all so much. Have a great Saturday afternoon. Thank you. And thank you to Gospel thank Music Buzz for yeah. allowing us That's to form. take over for today. We appreciate. Thanks to all our family and friends for joining us today. All the way from Guyana, we have some. So 
Thank you all from wherever you are in the world taking the time to join us.